Bibles to Genesis, uh, end of 29. We will be uh, working through this large section of text this morning. If you have any questions about anything that we talk about or anything that we miss, go ahead and uh, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA and type in your questions there, and we'll take a look at those afterwards. Uh, before we get into our text this morning, I wanted to just kind of remind everyone again that uh, the season of Lent starts this week. We will be uh, Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday, and uh, we talked a little bit last week about what Lent is and, and how it's a period of repentance and confession and fasting and preparation for uh, the season of Easter. Uh, and I would just encourage you to participate in the Lenten fast with us and. Um, if that's something that is uh, strange to you or unfamiliar, I'd love to talk with you more about that. Um, I sent an email out last week kind of outlining some different ways you can participate in fasting. Um, and uh, I'll be continuing to do some different, um, give some different tips and, and things uh, through email over the weeks of Lent. Um, and I would just say, like, if you are someone who maybe hears the idea of, of fasting and thinks, like, that's not for me or that sounds weird or why would I do something like that, um, I would just highly encourage you to reconsider that. Um, I, I've talked before, but it seems pretty clear to me when we read in the Sermon on the, on the Mount that Jesus has the same attitude, attitude towards fasting as he does towards prayer, that, that Christians, his people would be people of prayer, that they would be people who develop rhythms of prayer, and, and he says the same kind of things about fasting, that fasting would be something that we as Christians would do. And so there's a lot of ways to fast, and you certainly don't have to fast through Lent with us, but my question for you it would then be, if, if you're not going to participate during the Lenten season, which has been established by the church for a couple thousand years as a, as a good way to do it, um, what's your plan otherwise? And maybe you've, maybe you've got a great one, and, and you've got a rhythm for fasting, and that's great. Um, praise God for that. But if not, this is a perfect opportunity to jump into something that maybe feels a little unfamiliar. And then secondly, just an encouragement about fasting. Maybe you started fasting with us at Advent, which is another season of preparation for Christmas. And maybe that was the first time you participated in something like that. You experienced fasting for the first time. And, and it was something of a novelty. And, and I, I'll speak to myself in this is, is as I pursue disciplines in the church that are unfamiliar to me initially, I have a feeling of like excitement that we're going to do something that we've never done before. And, and it seems, uh, even though I wouldn't call fasting fun, it seems there's a, there's a looking forward to what God is going to do through the experience. But then the second time and the third time and the fourth time, you lose that novelty and it becomes like, oh, we're, we're doing that again? Didn't we just do that? And, and if you're feeling like this kind of um, reflection and, and discipline is, is kind of like a chore at this point, I would just encourage you that uh, it doesn't have to be, that, that this is uh, a way to engage with God, with our bodies that we might not typically do. And so I would just encourage you to pray, prayerfully consider uh, participating over the next six weeks in some way. As for our corporate gatherings for Lent, um, in, in lieu of reciting the Lord's Prayer together, we're going to recite prayers of confession and repentance together for the six weeks of Lent. Uh, Lent is a, a season of reflection and repentance, and so we're going to use public prayer to help us do that. Uh, and then we're also going to, um, I like to experiment with things, we're, we're also going to um, incorporate the Nicene Creed into our uh, liturgy for this season as well. So you can look forward to that starting next Sunday. Uh, I'm assuming we're all in Genesis 29 at this point, so let me pray for us.
Lord God, thank you for your word. Uh, as, we, as we stood to read it, um, I, I, just, I confess that it is a weird chapter. Uh, there's a lot of crazy things going on here. And uh, it, it can be one of those things that we get to in our, our Bible reading plan or in our devotions, or, or maybe we're just unfamiliar with it entirely, and it just seems strange. Um, but Lord, this is your word for us. You inspired uh, Moses to write it down. You inspired generations of uh, faithful Israelites to keep it and protect it, and you've passed it down through the centuries to us for a purpose. And I just pray that we would hear your voice speak to us through it this morning. Even if the culture and the practices seem very strange and out of touch to us, um, the truth of your character and our um, own brokenness is, is, um, uh, it spans the generations. And, and we have something that we can glean this morning, I'm sure. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, question for you. What makes life meaningful? Any thoughts? Nobody, nobody can say anything? Purpose, okay, yeah. What gives, what gives life purpose? Love, I like that, that's good. Good job, Nora. Nora's not afraid. <laughs> All right, fine. I will tell you what most Americans think gives your life meaning. Uh, Pew Research, spring of 2021. Top result, 38% of Americans say children. How many of you think children give your life meaning? Yeah, a couple. Uh, uh, second, second place, uh, 25% career. Career gives your life meaning. Uh, below that, uh, 19% of us, money. Everybody likes money. A little lower than that, 18% friends. Below that, uh, this is after, after COVID, health. <laughs> Everybody's decided we don't need health anymore. Uh, 12% of us, freedom. 5%, nature. 4%, your spouse. <laughs> Marriage is not in a good place in America right now. Uh, 2%, faith even below the spouse. <laughs> and then, unfortunately, 1% pets. Darn it, pets. As, as church people, as Christians, we, I think, we know what the right answer to this question, what, is, what gives your life meaning? What do we, what, but, but the reality is, what do, we, what do we spend our time talking about? What do we spend our time thinking about? What do we spend our time and our energy dwelling on and doing? The question, what do you do when you do what you want to do, is a key to what you find meaningful. In this section of Genesis, Jacob's family is, is, is growing, it's settling into some rhythms, and it is pursuing what they think, each one of them, what they think will give their life meaning. And there's a couple paradoxes in this text. The, the first one is, is that the things that they want out of life that we're going to look at, they're good things. They're not bad things. It's not, you know, um, drugs and rock and roll. You know, it's, it's good things. But they're all going to struggle and they're all going to strive to accomplish these things. And they're not going to find satisfaction in them. 
But then the second paradox, even in the midst of their striving for these things that aren't satisfying them, God is quietly at work behind the scenes, giving them good things in spite of their own attitudes. So we're going to take a look at Leah and Rachel and Jacob this morning and see God's faithfulness to each of them. First of all, we look at Rachel, or sorry, we're going to look at Leah first. What does Leah want? Love. She wants a husband who loves her. It's only 4% of us want that. <laughs> but that's what she wants. She's unwanted. She's unvalued. Her husband probably resents her for, being a part, for playing the part she did in tricking him into marrying her in the first place. That's a rocky place to start a marriage. But Jacob, culturally, Jacob would absolutely want a son, right? We've talked about this with Abraham and Isaac. The the firstborn son was a big deal in this culture. A son means favor from God, an extra pair of hands on the farm, a social safety net for when you're old. In Jacob's case, it's evidence of God's promise of a lineage coming to pass. And so Leah thinks, if I give my husband a son, he will love me. And so she gives birth to Reuben, the firstborn son. And does she get what she wants? No. In verse 33, we read that the Lord heard that I am neglected and has given me this son also. The whole, the, all, of these, all of these things that the, the wives say are, are part of the definition of what the names of the sons are. They're naming their sons after their emotional and life experiences. And, and Leah is unloved after Reuben is born. She has two sons now, but it's not enough to win Jacob's love. She gets this third son and says, at last, my husband will become attached to me because I've worn three sons. And it still doesn't get her what she wants. She conceives again in verse 35 and gave birth to a son and said, this time I will praise Yahweh. I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then Leah stopped having children. And I feel like there's a little bit of a shift in Leah here. It's not going to last forever, but for the moment, it seems like she's understanding that her satisfaction and her meaning should come from Yahweh. This son has not caused me to yearn after love from my husband, but has caused me to praise the Lord. My satisfaction should come from God, not from my husband. And this is really important for all of us, and we're going to come back to this a few times we're going to likely have to make this shift that we see in Leah over and over and over again throughout our lives. We have to remind ourselves, maybe daily, that my satisfaction comes from Christ, not from these other things, whatever they are. Even if they're good things, it would be good and right for Jacob to love his wife well. But in the absence of that, Leah recognizes, at least in this moment, that her satisfaction comes from God. And it's really easy for us when we have these other things, when we have a happy marriage and we have enough money and our career is going well and our children are well-behaved and all of these things to say, yeah, my satisfaction is in Christ. But when those things are taken away from us, that's when the rubber meets the road. Are we really satisfied in who Jesus is? Have we really been given everything we need in him? And Leah does all right here until Rachel figures out how to manipulate the system to get children for Jacob as well. We read in verses 9 through 21, 
that after Rachel starts this uh, scheme for having how, it, how she can get children, Leah sees it happening and decides to participate. We'll talk about Rachel specifically in a minute, but Leah has four sons. She's been faithful to her role as mother to provide heirs for her husband. And it feels like she's trusting in Yahweh, but at this point, she needs to compete and one-up her sister by giving her maid to Jacob. You know that song, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better, I Can Do Anything Better Than You? This is, this is her attitude, right? She doesn't need to give her handmaid to Jacob like Rachel seems to think she does, but she does it anyway because she won't lose. In James chapter 3, we read, if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. Envy is something that we put in the category of like minor sins. Like there's adultery and murder and tax evasion on this side. But over here, there's just all these things like being angry and being jealous and uh, gossip and those things like that. And they're kind of these little things. But James doesn't say that. James says that envy and selfish and bitter, uh, ambition is really dark. And it makes us do foolish things. Leah doesn't want to give Zilpah to Jacob. She wants to be better than Rachel. But the reality is, in the metric that she's filtering her life through, she is better than Rachel. She's born four sons to her husband, and Rachel is barren. But that doesn't matter. Leah doesn't just want to win. She wants Rachel to lose. C.S. Lewis says, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance and where everyone's lives, everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. Have you ever felt that feeling when somebody else gets promoted at work? I felt that multiple times in, in weird ways, like somebody in a different department that has skills and abilities that I don't have, that has a job that I don't want, gets promoted, and it makes me feel jealous. Why didn't I get that promotion? I don't want that promotion, but I don't want them to have it either. What a weird feeling. But imagine at least some of us have experienced that before. In that moment, I'm not finding my worth in Christ but in how I compare to other people. And so why is this so hard for Leah? I mean, there could be a lot of reasons, but it looks like at this point in the story, we're going to talk about the whole Mandrake thing in a minute. There should have been a schedule of sleeping arrangements in their house. And I know this is, this is one of those things where you dive into polygamy and like, again, disclaimer, Every time we see polygamy in the Old Testament, it goes badly. So we're not advocating for this, but this is the situation of the culture at the time. But there should have been a fairness about the household. And it looks like Rachel has taken over the schedule and is barring Leah from it. 
Gordon Wenham says, suspension of conjugal rights can, according to the usual interpretation of Exodus 21.10, be grounds for divorce. It looks like Leah is being kept out of her rights as a wife at this point in their marriage. And so we see this um, story about the mandrakes. Reuben, who's probably five or six years old, goes out into the field and finds this plant. Mandrakes are a little potato-like plant. It was considered in the ancient world a fertility drug. And so this becomes currency for Leah to buy a single night with her husband from Rachel. And so throughout this story, you just feel like Leah's, Leah's in a really rough spot. I mean, obviously, she's, she's participating in, in this rivalry, but she's unloved by her husband, and she's being kept out of the marriage bed by her sister and rival wife. And you could ask the question, where is God in all this? How is God being faithful And we read over and over again that God is seeing and listening to Leah in all of her pregnancies. And she's sure that after six boys and at least one daughter, her husband will love her. But then the story kind of shifts to something else and it leaves us hanging like, well, does he? Do all of these children change his heart towards her? And we never really quite get the answer to that. But in a few chapters from now, we're going to read about Jacob's burial. And Jacob is going to be buried in the same family plot that his grandfather and grandmother, Abraham and Sarah, are buried in, the same family plot that his mom and dad, Isaac and Rebekah, are buried in. And he's going to be buried in that plot next to not his favorite wife, Rachel, but to Leah, and that, as, as often in the Hebrew Bible, it doesn't give us all the information we would want, but it hints at this idea that at some point, by the end of their lives, Jacob realized how valuable Leah was to the point that he chooses not to be buried next to Rachel, but next to Leah. But even that, like that's what Leah wants, right? Leah wants her husband to love her. But is that what God wants for her? Is that God's best for her? Is that the final point of this part of the story? Oh, Jacob loves Leah. And I don't think so. And in one of my favorite ways to think about Leah's story comes from one of the Bibles that we use here in children's ministry called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I want to read part of it to you this morning. It usually makes me cry, so I'm trying to not do that. But it says, no one loves me, Leah said. I'm too ugly. But God didn't think she was ugly. When, she, when he saw Leah was not loved and that no one wanted her, God chose her to love her specially, to give her a very important job. One day, God was going to rescue the whole world through Leah's family. Now, when Leah knew that God loved her, in her heart, suddenly it didn't matter anymore whether her husband loved her the best or if she was the prettiest. Someone had chosen her. Someone did love her with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. 
So when Leah had a baby boy, she called him Judah, which means this time I will praise the Lord. And that's just what she did. And you'll never guess what job God gave Leah. You see, when God looked at Leah, he saw a princess. And sure enough, that's exactly what she became. One of Leah's children's children's children would be a prince, the prince of heaven, God's son. This prince would love God's people. They wouldn't need to be beautiful for him to love them. He would love them with all his heart. And they would be beautiful because he loved them, like Leah. And I don't know if that's a satisfying end to Leah's longing for purpose and satisfaction in life in the moment. But as a legacy, it's a, it's a pretty good one. There's a couple other people in this story, though. Let's look at God's faithfulness to Rachel. At the beginning of chapter 30, Rachel realizes that she cannot bear children and she is envious. Give me sons or I will die, she said to Jacob. So what does Rachel want? Kids. 38% of us want kids. Rachel is suffering from the same fate as her mother-in-law and her grandmother-in-law did, infertility. She is loved and favored by her husband, but she is barren, which is a major stigma. We've talked about it before. To, have the, to not have the ability to have children in that culture would have been a disgrace. And her sister-wife is having children. And Jacob responds in anger in verse 2 of chapter 30, but he says something wise, even though he probably doesn't say it well. Am I in the place of God? He has withheld offspring from you. He recognizes that ultimately this is God's decision. And unfortunately for Rachel, she's in this position where she waits far fewer years than Sarah or Rebecca had in her struggle with infertility. But she has to come to this place where she recognizes that this is up to God. In Ecclesiastes 11, we read, just as you don't know the path of the wind or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman, so also you don't know the work of God who makes everything. Now, in some ways, we live in a very different time with science and medicine and technology, but in other ways, and it's, it's fascinating to read a little bit, we are still completely in the dark about pregnancy. There are lots of questions about where babies come from that we just do not have answers to. Parts of the process of the, the creation of life are incredibly mysterious. And this is not ideal for any of us. Because if it's up to God to do something in our lives, that means that we don't have control over it. On the one hand, if it's God's problem, it's not Rachel's fault. But on the other hand, if it's God's fault, Rachel can't do anything about it. I wonder what kind of questions Rachel has in this moment. Why? What did I do to deserve this? What's wrong with me? Why is God punishing me? 
Uh, in early in our marriage, Joanna and I struggled with infertility. We had several miscarriages, and it was a very difficult season, um, more so for Joanna. And she really struggled with some kind of questions like that. Why, why is this happening to me? Did I do something to deserve this? I was very unhelpful during that season. I was experiencing the losses differently, and I was um, not very wise in my words, kind of like Jacob. It was very difficult for us, and I know some of us in this room also have experienced that sort of thing. But it's hard because that sort of problem is out of your control. What can I do if there's nothing I can do? And when you're thinking about desires in your life that you don't seem to have any control over, there's a lot of variables here, and I talk about this a lot. One of the best ways to gain wisdom is to surround yourself with Christian community. But if you discern that there is a roadblock to a desire you have, and it would be an act of God to remove it, then you realize I don't have any control anymore. And if that's the case, sometimes we, we just don't want to be in that position. See, if, if I can figure out how the deficiency here is in me, well, then I can fix it. I can try harder, can learn more, I can do better. And that might be difficult, that might be terrifying, but at the end of the day, I am in charge of that. And for Jacob to tell his wife, look, this is up to God. You don't have any control over this. This is not what she wants to hear. And so she basically rejects that counsel and takes control of the situation. She gives her maid Bilhah to Jacob to be a second-class wife, a concubine. Uh, as, and again, as we talked about, uh, Sarah and Hagar a number of, of months ago in that situation. This is, seems pretty awful to us culturally, but it would have been a normal cultural expectation in that world. If you couldn't produce a son for your husband, you could uh, pr- give him a surrogate and adopt the child yourself. And this is what she does. And she believes, she says, when Dan is born, that God has vindicated me. He has heard me and given me a son. So Rachel bumps up to this problem she has. She's not getting what she wants, and she creates a plan. She's not, she says, no, this isn't God saying no. This is me not finding the way forward. And so she says two really interesting things in her naming of Dan and Naphtali. The first thing she says is that God has done this. Rachel schemes and manipulates the circumstances just like her grandmother Sarah did. God didn't tell Jacob and Rachel to do this. This isn't his idea, but it worked. So it must be a blessing. God must be giving me what I want. But then when she names Naphtali, her attitude shifts a little bit. God is actually my adversary in this. 
God blessed this course of action, but he's also the one that I have to outmaneuver to get what I want. And she says, now I'm a better wife than my sister. So she seems kind of confused, doesn't she? On the one hand, she's praising God for what he has done, but also kind of rebuking God for getting in her way. And then by having two sons through her concubine, she thinks now she's better than her sister who had four sons on her own. We're pretty complicated people, aren't we? We think we're rational beings. We think we think clearly, but this is not the case. Jonathan Haidt in his great book, The Righteous Mind, says, conscious reasoning functions like a press secretary who automatically justifies any position taken by the president. With the help of our press secretary, we are able to lie and cheat often and then cover it up so effectively that we convince even ourselves. Reasoning can take us to almost any conclusion we want to reach because we ask, can I believe it when we want to believe something, but must I believe it when we don't want to believe? The answer is almost always yes to the first question and no to the second. Rachel creates a situation of her own making, manufactures a whole bunch of different reasons why it's God's plan for her life, and then walks in pride because of it. And she's so blinded by envy toward her sister that she can't think clearly about any of it. But as usually happens with all of us when we, go, when we do an end run around God and come up with our own plan, the plan she came up wasn't, with wasn't good enough. She wanted to have a child of her own. And so there's this situation with Reuben. He finds these mandrakes, these, this fertility drug, this solution to her problem, and she wants them. She still needs to be in control of this situation. It's not God saying no to children. It's some deficiency in me, and I'm going to take this uh, drug to fix it. And I would want to say that, side note, fertility drugs aren't necessarily a bad thing. Um, but we've normalized this sort of thing to the point that I think we fail to step back and ask the question, are they a good thing? That's a very personal discussion for people experiencing infertility, but um, that's definitely something that shouldn't be taken lightly. So she takes these mandrakes, but this plan doesn't work either. Gordon Wenham says again, Leah, who gives up the mandrakes, bears three children. Rachel, who possesses them, remains barren for apparently three more years. No matter how Rachel schemes to get what she wants, she doesn't outmaneuver God. God is going to do what he wants. His purpose is going to stand. And there isn't anything that we can do about it. In Isaiah 14, God says, The Lord of armies has sworn, as I have purposed, so it will be, as I have planned it, so it will happen. And this can be a real comfort if we are resting in God's love for us, if we are confident in who he is and that he cares for us. But if that's not where we're at, if we feel like he's blocking our way to what we really want, that can be really frustrating. And this situation of frustration goes on for some years for Rachel. But then we read in verse 22, God remembered 
Rachel, he listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son, and she said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add another son to me. God remembered Rachel. This is the same phrase that comes up in several places in the Old Testament. The first time we saw it was in the flood story, at the middle of the flood story, the very climax of Genesis, I believe chapter 8. It says, God remembered Noah. And this doesn't mean that God forgot Noah or God forgot Rachel, that he misplaced them for a bit, that he's like tired and worn out and he, oops, there's Rachel, I forgot about her. It means that he has led her through a dark season for her own good and he's brought her to the end of it. Just like in the flood story, Noah was never off God's radar, but Noah was being led through a season of darkness and struggle and pain in the ark, protected until the time had come for God to act again. And maybe some of us this morning can really empathize with that. It's been a difficult season. Maybe God's felt like he's at a distance. The boat you've been in has been rocky. But there's purpose in that. In Noah's case, it's pretty easy to see. Noah has been given this job to protect and and, um, hold on to humanity through this flood. But in Rachel's situation, it's, it's a little harder. Why is Rachel barren for this season? The text doesn't explicitly tell us. We would hope that Rachel has learned things, been shaped by the experience. But what we do see is that as soon as she gets what she wants, as soon as she has baby Joseph, what does she say? Lord, give me another one. And isn't that like us? As soon as we get the thing that we want, we realize, oh, it's not good enough. I need more. I need better. I need another. And the tragic thing is the birth of this second son, Benjamin, is going to end her life. A few chapters from now, she's going to die in childbirth. And we kind of leave Rachel's story there. It's not... It's not the kind of happy ending that we can maybe manufacture for Leah. Rachel's husband's love doesn't satisfy her and her children don't satisfy her. In chapter 31, we see her clinging to the household gods of her father. There's a question, does she even end up finding satisfaction in God in the end at all? The story just doesn't say. And that's something that we all have to wrestle with. If we are people who have been created with free will, then God can be as faithful to us as he always is. And we can choose not to meet that faithfulness with love and trust. We can choose to wander our own way. We can choose to put other things in the place of God. We can choose to try to find our satisfaction in other things that are ultimately not going to satisfy us. And for some of us, we can just decide never to relent and just always pursue the things that we want. So one more character in the story today. We see Jacob. How is God faithful to Jacob? We read in verse 25, after Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so that I can return to my homeland. Give me my wives and my children that I've worked for and let me go. You know how hard I have worked for you. 
But Laban said to him, if I have found favor with you, stay. I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. And Laban said, name your wages and I will pay them. So Jacob said to him, you know that I've served you and how your herds have fared with me. For you had very little before I came, but now your wealth has increased. The Lord has blessed you because of me. And now when will I also do something for my own family? So what does Jacob want? I mean, the easy thing to say is money, right? 19% of us want that. Career, maybe. A legacy. None of these things are necessarily bad things. He wants to support his family well. The birth of a son to Rachel triggers a situation in which it would be appropriate for Jacob to leave. John Walton says it this way, if a woman has not born children, she can easily be discarded or demoted. The only protection she had came from her father's family who then took responsibility for her. Prior to Joseph's birth, a request to leave would have been inappropriate from Jacob's standpoint and risky from Rachel's for it would rob Rachel of her protection. But now that Joseph is born, uh, the idea that Rachel would be discarded from the family is left from Laban's mind. That can't be an option anymore. So Jacob wants to leave. But Laban realizes through the process of divination, contact with the spirit world, that the secret to his prosperity over the last 14 years is Jacob. And Laban doesn't want to lose this. Jacob doesn't want to be indebted to Laban. And so he comes up with a plan. The sheep are white, the goats are brown. Very few animals would have been speckled or spotted. And so Jacob offers to work for the speckled animals. And this is a very potentially, assumingly, small percentage of the flock. Gordon Wenham in his commentary says, not surprisingly, Laban accepts this very favorable deal. He did not anticipate Jacob making much out of it, certainly much less than the typical 20% of newborn lambs or kids that ancient shepherds usually received as their wages. What Wenham is saying is that if you were a shepherd in that day, you would receive 20% of all the births as your own. And Jacob is setting up a deal for himself where he just gets a tiny fraction of that percentage. And so this is an incredibly good deal for Laban, but he still goes out and removes all the speckled stock from the herd to prevent Jacob from earning anything at all. Jacob is, or Laban is not a good guy. He's just a bad man. And we see two things happen here. The first thing we see is Jacob does this weird look at the branches while you breed plan. And it, it works. <laughs> so the first thing to say about this is this is not a real thing. If you've ever taken genetics, <laughs> uh, that's not how genetics works. This is superstition on Jacob's part. There's this, this old theory that, that what the animals look at when they breed has something to, that passes to the young in some way. Uh, this is not true. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're kind of skeptical of the Bible, and this is a good reason why you're skeptical of the Bible. This has got all these weird stories in it, and this is really crazy, and, and these foolish people. But remember, when the Bible comments on a practice, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily endorsing it. This is what Jacob did. It doesn't mean that it was a good idea or that's why it worked. In fact, we read this in the next chapter. 
When the flocks were breeding, I saw in a dream that the streaked, spotted, and speckled males were mating with the females. In that dream, the angel of God said to me, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, look up and see all the males that are mating with the flocks are streaked, spotted, and speckles, speckled, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. It is, according to God, God who made the flocks speckled and spotted. It's not this superstitious practice with these branches. It's not Jacob trusting in his own ability to do ancient genetics, but it's God who chose to bless Jacob in spite of himself. But the other thing we see in this section is that Jacob is also a good shepherd. In verse 41, we read, whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob placed the branches in the troughs in full view of the flocks, and they would breed in front of the branches. As for the weaklings of the flocks, he did not put out the branches. So it turned out that the weak sheep belonged to Laban and the stronger ones to Jacob. Jacob knows enough about shepherding to know about selective breeding. And this is a real thing, right? We, we know that if you, you can identify positive genetic traits and breed certain pairs, you can get stronger animals. And so on the one sense, Jacob is clinging to his superstition. And in the other sense, he actually knows what he's doing. And I feel like we are often in that experience that situation as well, where we are just fumbling our way forward and maybe we're bringing some things to the table, some skills, some abilities, but we're also trusting in some really stupid stuff. Oftentimes, we're going to do foolish things and God is still going to be faithful. He gives us abilities and gifts that he expects us to use. Jacob works hard. He uses his knowledge and experience. He throws in some weird superstition that doesn't matter. But God kind of ignores that and blesses him anyway. So we see in this section two parts of the promise that God gave to Abraham, that Abraham passed on to Isaac, that Isaac passed on to Jacob, that there will be a family and that there will be resources. And As we move on in the next section, we'll see Jacob going back to the land, which is the third part of the promise. But we see that God is faithful to his word. He's going to make sure his desires, his promises, his plans come to pass. And in the midst of it, it's super messy, isn't it? There's sin and and just brokenness and duplicity, and pain, and hardship, and poor choices, and and ramifications that, that people have to deal with for the rest of their lives. But in the background, God is still quietly working and making sure his purposes come to pass. So then let's think about us for a second. What, what do we want? What gives us purpose and satisfaction? Is it children, or career, or money, or friends, or health, freedom? Nature, your spouse, your pets. Maybe, maybe we, none of those things are bad, right? All of those things are good things to want. But what do we really need? What actually brings us true satisfaction as human beings? We need Jesus. Psalm 16 says, you revealed the path of life to me. 
In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, for every one of God's promises is yes in him, in Christ. Jesus himself says in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. There's a danger for us in thinking through God's blessings in the Old Testament and mapping it onto our lives as Christians. Um, as, As followers of Jesus, at this time in history, we're not promised biological children. We aren't promised career success. We aren't promised money or health or freedom or a spouse who loves us. What we are promised is Jesus. But then we have to ask the question, is that what we really want? Does our schedule every week bear that out? Does our wallet bear that out? Does the, the thing, the, our thought life bear that out? These are, these are ways that we can check our hearts and, and say, like, what are the things that you dwell on? Is Jesus even on that list? I've said this before, but one of my um, kind of go-to diagnostic places is the shower because there's nothing to do in the shower. Uh, I, we were talking about... Um, we were looking at shower heads the other night and, and there was this one shower head that had this little shelf thing and we thought, maybe that's where you put your phone. But don't, put your, don't bring your phone into the shower. Uh, but in the shower, I don't have anything to do except stand under the water and think. What do I think about? What comes to my mind? What do I, what do I have anxiety over? What do I plan through? What do I um, envision for my future when I'm just free to think? It's a, it's a clue into my heart and what I ultimately value. And as we, as we read through the New Testament, we, we begin to understand that ultimately we're called to value Christ. And this is what God wants for us, that, that we would be people more than anything who find our satisfaction in Jesus. And no matter where you saw yourself in the story this morning, I hope, I hope in some of it there is a little bit of a rebuke from the Holy Spirit. I think I know I was as I studied this week of like, oh, there's some tendencies in me that are broken and misshapen. But the reality is this morning, we are all being offered the invitation to accept satisfaction and ultimate meaning in our lives in Christ as a free gift. And we don't have to strive and manipulate and struggle for things that ultimately won't satisfy us in the end. Let's do some Q&R. In this culture, if Jacob didn't love or even like Leah, could he have ignored her and just been with Rachel? Obviously, he's not completely put off by her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's a question about a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, 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 
I mean, there's like a, the psychology of men's sexuality question, which I'm not going to touch. And then there's the um, requirement for Jacob to do his duty as a husband. And this is where we see the tension in the section with the mandrakes. It seems like um, Rachel or Leah is not getting her conjugal rights from her husband. And, and if we read a little further in the law in Exodus, it makes clear that a husband's job is, is that one of a husband's job is to provide this for his wife. And so um, at least at some point in the, in some points in their marriage, Jacob has this realization that he has a duty to Leah. Fertility drug comment confused me. Why aren't, aren't they just a blanket positive? What is there to think about with them? Oh, yeah. So we live in a world where um, we, when, when we can't have children, we can fix that, right? Where, whereas there's this, uh, this whole mandrake thing in the text. In, in our world, we have all kinds of therapies and scientific procedures and all kinds of technology that we can incorporate in order to, um, for someone to get pregnant. And many, many of those things are good and beautiful and, and a gift from God of common grace. But there are fertility options that our culture has decided are good that are morally complicated. Um, many fertility options require the uh, creation of multiple embryos. And some of whom aren't intended to be given um, birth. And so then there's an ethical question of what, what does it look like to um, spend time creating potentially many children? We believe that life begins at conception, right? And a fertilized egg is a human being. What does it mean to create that many children and then with the knowledge that you're not going to bring them fully into the world? Uh, and this is... This is an ethical dilemma that, that many in the, in the wider culture don't consider a problem because, again, if, if you don't consider a preborn child to be a human being, then what's the problem? But if you do hold to the view that a preborn child is human, then, then there's a question. And there are many Christian people wrestling with this question on, on how best to uh, counsel women with infertility, counsel couples with infertility. There is a, a whole um, set of ministries dedicated to embryo adoption. What do we do with all of these embryos that have been given human life and are now in a freezer somewhere? Can we be of service to, to bring these human children into the world? So I guess the comment is, is, is basically, this is an area where our culture would say, well, yeah, it's just not a big deal. Let's do it. And I would say if that's a situation that you are in or a situation that you're counseling someone else in, it might be a really good and beautiful thing and God's will for um, your life. But it also might not. And depending on how you go about it, it could be ethically problematic. And so I would just strongly consider good counsel in that situation. Okay, last question. Could it be possible that the peeled branches placed in the water troughs could somehow chemically affect the sheep during breeding? So one of my commentaries floated this as an idea, and I guess anything's possible. But I am personally unsure of how probable that would be 
and more confident in God saying that he was the one that brought the increase in the next chapter himself. So that's where I land on that. Um, it's one of those tricky areas, right, when we're in the Old Testament and the, and the text just says something and then you kind of go like, what am I supposed to do with this? And there is, there is an impulse in us to be like, well, this must be something that God is endorsing as true. And so we have to figure out how to make it make sense. And yeah, the, anything's possible. But I'm going to say that, that God says in chapter 31 that he was responsible for it ultimately. So that's where I land. Good questions. We're going to take communion this morning. And um, we always take communion on Sundays. Jesus in John 6 says this. He says, The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus offers himself to us as the source of ultimate satisfaction and meaning. And we, we lose sight of that and we think about family and career and success and money and spouse and all these things and we put them in front of him. But in the communion meal, we have just one more reminder to lay down the things that we put in front of Christ, the things that we think are gonna give our life purpose and to accept the gift of Jesus that is our ultimate purpose. And maybe this morning you're, you don't know what those things are. I, I find a lot of times I, don't, I, can't, I can't discern what's going on in my heart. So I would invite you to ask the Holy Spirit as we, as we pray, as we sing, what are the things in my life that I put too much time into, that I put too much energy into, that I strive after, that gets in front of Jesus? And ask God to show you. And they might be good things. They probably are. I, I, would, I guess most of us probably aren't living our lives in pursuit of blatantly evil things. But that's the, the, the seduction of it, is that these things aren't good enough to center our life on. And the communion meal is a reminder that the centerpiece of our life, the ultimate joy and satisfaction that we get comes from Christ. So I'd invite you to come up and take the bread and the cup. We have wine and juice per the dictates of your conscience and take it back to your seat. As the band comes up, we're going to sing. Um, you're welcome to sit or stand and come kneel with the prayer rugs and just spend some time letting the Spirit of God speak to you about what you're actually trying to get out of life and where you're actually looking for meaning. And, and if it's not Jesus this morning, just repent of that and, and ask him to put himself back in the center of your focus. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.